this is bullshit. It's no totally one, I don't know anyone who's buying their own hens. And oh, they oh they interviewed someone who works at a, a, a hen broker. Surprise, surprise. I'm sure their opinion is unbiased. I'm sure they're going to you know, actually report the conditions of, of market conditions. Yeah. Oh, everyone's buying their own hen. I call BS. Welcome back to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Murio. As always, Bob Iacchino, who is the brains behind the operation. We have Jack Farley, who is one of my favorite guys on Twitter, posts a lot of interesting stuff. He, more so than many of our other guests, he's a journalist and an interviewer, and he has with him the, the knowledge of so many of the people he's interviewed. So we're going to try to pick into that. But before we do that, we're going to start with the same old fucking nonsense that we always do. We're going to ask him questions about his favorite movie, his favorite TV shows, dogs or cats. What's your favorite TV show? And by the way, there's, this is selfish for me because I just finished that White Lotus thing. Did you guys watch that? Oh, yeah. I started like to. It lost, it lost me. Seriously. I, I, Should it not lose me? most of the people in it. And I like we were hoping for all of them to die, but we only knew we could just have one. And the fact that it, oh, should I even say it? I don't want to spoiler alert anyone else. But you liked White Lotus, Jack? Uh, yeah, I loved it. And I, I think the phenomenon is interesting of a character is really annoying and you, you'd never be friends with them in real life. You'd, you'd hate them in real life, but you still like that character. And that's a separate phenomenon from you, you don't like the character and you actually don't like the character. You know, I, like one of my favorite shows is Succession and pretty much uh, every single character there is very unlikable and uh, you're not uh, someone you'd look up to or maybe be friends with in, in any circumstance but you do you know many of the characters you do actually like so when you said you don't like the white lotus characters i'm curious do you like oh if if i met them in real life i wouldn't like them or do you actually not like the characters you know what i mean i don't know the answer to that question that's very good here's my answer though you watch game of thrones right oh yeah and game of thrones there was clear good guys clear bad guys and then some people who went back and forth i like that model I like to have someone who I know is good and, I'm, and when bad things happen to them, it's a bummer. And I, I like that model. And now it seems like they overthink this shit and everybody's got to be so complicated. Do I have, do you think I have a point at all or do you like that stuff? I think I like both, but I know what you mean where, you know, in, in the White Lotus, like, you know, the, the good looking guy who works in finance, I think his name's Cameron, like he, um, he, he's a bad guy and like you, you wouldn't want to be friends with him as a wealth advisor you know people you know three of us you know follow finance closely like he'd be a bad wealth advisor like he'd be the guy who would get you into carvana at the top get you into Terra, the thing the crypto that went to literally like a 0.00 uh so no reasonable qualities whatsoever but like who are you gonna like the the harper the the other guy's uh girlfriend who's like incredibly judgy like she thinks she's better than cameron but i'm not so i'm not convinced jim you know i like it <laughs> So it was funny because I tried to start watching this White Lotus. A bunch of people recommended it to me. And I struggled immediately in episode one. And I actually want to ask you both. Is this one of those shows where you got to get past an episode or two? Or do I just not get it? Real quick, Bob. Can I say is it season chat? one or season two? What's that? Season one or season two? The first season episode. one. Okay. I was like, why the hell is anybody watching this? I think they these new fancy artsy shows the first episode or two is a little too much character development and it can be boring. So I would say the answer to that is yes. Jack, do you agree? 
Uh, I would say, I would say yes, but if you're not liking it by, uh, you know, episode two or three, it, it might be time to dump it. And I feel like, you know, that's true in, in finance. Like often you put it on position and it, it, it crashes against you and it can feel wrong, but it actually is right. But yeah, you know, and just in general life, like if you're doing something in your life that is making you miserable and it's not working, like, you know, maybe on the first week you say, okay, I'm going to power through this, but you, you really should cut it out if it's not working. But back, we'll get to, that's a, a great answer. We'll get to that in a second too, but you do, you, I will add to Bobby, Jack, I'm sure you probably agree. Just for the scenery in White Lotus, it's probably mm. worth it. Would you agree, Jack? So if you're a scenery guy, I would say yes, but I feel like I'm, I'm more into the, the characters, but as scenery goes, I, I'd agree with you, but I don't know if I'm someone who, who you know, like, I, I feel like this is true about, um, you know, if, if the writing is bad, the characters are bad, it can be the most beautiful thing. I, I'm not interested. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Who should we get on some serious shit or no? Sure. Why not? Okay. So, so this is obviously, by the way, I we're taping this on Thursday afternoon. Uh, rates in the short end, just, they went higher and I was in the midst of an enormous trade, but I didn't have time to figure out why that was happening. Was something said in the last hour or two today? Do you guys, do you guys have your thumb on the pulse of that or we just, just get sick of it? Either of you, nothing? I gotta say, you know, Jim, I, I like to think of myself as someone who most days have the finger on the pulse. I could, I could at least give you an answer. It would not be you know, deep, but at least I would know. But today I'm, I'm a little scattered. So I'm a little uh, eye off the ball, I have to say. Yeah, I'm a little scattered too. I just, I had a, just, we got out of a huge trade with one of my clients. So my hair was on fire for like the last hour, but now I'm finally starting to calm down a little bit too. Okay, let's talk about the Federal Reserve. I'll throw, I'll throw this out on that question, Jim. I think it might've been a little bit of, you know, I, I think we're in a market right now and, and having been, Jim and I both, our background is probably, I don't know, what would you say, Jim? 70% interest rates, 60% interest rates? Sure, more. yeah. And I always, when I look at the bond market, Jack, to me, the bond market is the thing that's right more often than not. And if you just look at what's happened to yields, Yields going up today is kind of the trend and uh, the short-term trend. Because if I go back, so let me go back here. I, I track yields every single day and I track the yield curve every single day. If you go, let's just use the 10 years of proxy. If you go the day that Jerome Powell had his press conference, 10 year was down 13 basis points. Here is the settlement for the next five days or so. Up one, up 13, up 10, up four, down four. Today we're up about four as we speak, again, it's Thursday afternoon. So the trend is actually higher yields. And I think that might've been what helped push equities down as opposed to the other way around. So that's true. So, so Jack, here comes then the question for you. So ever since that, that massively high unemployment number a week ago, the yield curve twos to tens has inverted further. Um, what's your answer to that? Is, that? is that the market calling bullshit on that number? Have you interviewed anybody who's had anything good to say about that? Anything interesting? Oh, that, that's a great question. Uh, let's let's see. I, I want to go back and say. So before we, look, we talk about the two ten spread, let's just just talk about uh, the the two year and uh, maybe more specific uh, contract for like like SOFR or, or or Fed funds about like what where the Fed is is going to hike and what they're going to do. I think that. Uh, so the Wednesday FOMC, which uh, was February 1st, that caught you know many in the market, definitely myself included, off guard. I thought Powell was going to just you know trash the market and and say 
go against the easing of financial conditions, but he didn't even acknowledge it. So I, I was dead wrong there. Uh, and then I think probably peak soft landing, peak, um, uh, peak moderation, peak cuts being priced in for, for the rest of eternity pretty much was the Thursday after that. So exactly one week ago. And then the uh, gobsmacking labor market beat where the unemployment rates at 3.4%, that led to the repricing that Bob was uh, referring to. Uh, I think that makes sense. And I I'll, I'll be honest, like, I feel like uh, last year, a lot of the price action you know, made, made sense to me. My, my thesis was that the Federal Reserve would uh, you know, continue to tighten because inflation. And you know, as, as things happen to validate your thesis, you're like, okay, this makes sense. And you know, by the way, the reason I had that thesis is just because I, I interview people who were smart and happened to be right. So it's not like I'm someone. But the, the price action right now has probably confused me more than it uh, I'd say like uh, 2020 when you, know, you had a huge rally, uh, even when the economy was, was was very poor. In retrospect, of course, that makes instant sense. Bob, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Actually, I'm I'm referencing Jim when I do that, so he gives. Me yeah, that. yeah. You, we we do hands by way. You can do whatever you want. You have okay, to do whatever you want. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm used to being in host mode. Okay, yeah. It's, it's good to be. <laughs> can I get in, you a cuss real quick? Never mind. You don't have to do that if you want. Um, who do you think? is the best interview right now, given the climate. In other words, I, I'm probably asking you, who have you interviewed that you thought was so valuable, enjoyed so much that we should probably try and get them on here sometime soon. And this of course isn't in any financial space. I don't care if it's crypto, I don't care if it's interest rates, I don't care if it's ETFs. What financial space, who should we be looking to interview that you've interviewed? So there's two things. There's one is how smart are they? How what they're looking at is different than the consensus, how much you know, interest do you think the audience and you will, will get from it uh, versus just the same old, same old. And then the second one is how right are they gonna be? You, know, you can have the, a, a brilliant uh, analyst, but if they're forecasting something that you think is not gonna happen, all right, you might have them on, you maybe you'll push back a little bit, you know, and of course a, a polite way so the, the audience can sort of get the, the difference of opinion. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like to interview people who are, are right. So I, I do, Put a pre I do value that as oh this person is right and um, you know nothing that on my podcast is for which is called for guidance by the way is investment advice but you know uh, net net I'd rather have interview a guest who's right and uh, you know if my audience does choose to make an investment decision that is informed by that they'll make money as as opposed to losing money so in you're talking about someone who's been right already or somebody who you think is right going forward. Uh, who I think is right going forward and oh, oftentimes sometimes I should say. A person who is right, I think will continue to be right because, you know, just generally in trend following, oh, the S&P is up 5% this week, next week, you know, could, could be a good week, unless it's like a, you know, a short squeeze, something like that. Um, so I'd say in retrospect, that person would be Joseph Wang. He used to work at the Federal Reserve, a uh, brilliant guy, extremely great communicator. And when I was lucky enough when he first came on in December of 2021, I identified pretty quickly that uh, he, he, he was brilliant. And I was learning a lot from him. And I, I sort of, you know, think about myself and my audience. I'm thinking like, if I'm learning a lot from my from this, you know, my audience will as what? Well. Like, like I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are in my audience who are, you know, professional head fund managers. And, you know, it, you two would count in this category. You've been in the business a lot. So you know a lot more about like the mechanics of the bond market. But a lot of people don't, you know, they're, uh, you know, not institutional investors, retail investors who you know, want to learn a lot more and they're willing to put the time in, you know, they, they don't want to listen to like a five minute or 10 minute podcast. But you know, if, if I'm learning a lot, you know, my, my audience would learn a lot. Um, and then Joseph turned out to be incredibly right. So what uh, Joseph continues to be an, an extremely- um, Who's Joseph? Joseph what? I missed the name. 
Joseph Wang. Uh, his his Twitter handle is at FedGuy, and uh, he. Oh, I know who he is. Then I, I know at that guy. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's great. So like in retrospect, because I knew he was is right, I, I had an inkling that he would be. Um, you know, he was sort of my bellwether for twenty twenty two. Um, I I don't, you know, I I, I say my my own person. This has nothing to do with Joseph, but my own confidence in where the macro is headed is probably the least confident I've been in, you know, maybe close to two years. So uh, I still have that number one of, of Joseph is this amazing guest, but, and I, I obviously still want to interview him and he, Joseph will continue to be on, on Forward Guidance, but I, I, I don't know what the theme of, of Forward Guidance is going to be. You know, if, uh, you know, I, I don't want to continue to interview people who are going to call for the S&P 500 to crash to 2000 if the price action is continually moving against them. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to change my mind. And I think that's what, uh, you know, good investors do is change their mind. If, you know, if they, if they thought, you know, crypto was a giant bubble uh, and they shorted it at 5,000, like when it goes to 60,000, like somewhere along that line, they should, they should cover their short. Likewise, if they thought that, you know, the dollar is going to be toilet paper and Bitcoin is going to replace everything, some way from $60,000 to $15,000, you got to re-examine re your view. So I feel like I do that uh, constantly for the purposes of the podcast and for the purposes of, you know, the reputation of the podcast and, and bringing value to my, to my audience. So I think that's similar to what investors should do. Anyway, I do it as an as investor too. Um, but yeah, so I, I can't say, oh, this is the person who's going to be right because my own macro framework is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit torn and maybe we can explore why I'm torn. So Jack, the, the people you've been, or, by the way, say the name of your podcast again, so everybody else can hear it and go and listen to it. Um, it's called Forward Guidance, and it's uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcast. And uh, on YouTube, it's uh, on the the name of the YouTube channel is Blockworks Macro, which uh, owns Forward Guidance, and that's where I work. Which is a uh, crypto company devoted to digital assets. Even though my podcast, uh, about ninety eight percent of it, has nothing to do with crypto and is focused on co uh, concepts in traditional finance, like you know liquidity, central banking, inflation, and, you know, the name forward guidance is a central banking tool. So I focus a lot on Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, that's what's going to bring up my question too. So do you think of the people you've interviewed, let's say in the last six months, do you think there is a waning confidence in the credibility of the Federal Reserve? Most, or do most of the people agree that they've kind of messed things up, they moved too late? What are, what are your thoughts? Okay. So I think there's, uh, Confidence in the Federal Reserve and particularly uh, central bank credibility is a term used frequently that I think can have several different me uh, uh, meanings. First is that the ability of the Federal Reserve to forecast future conditions. Uh, Federal Reserve says, oh, inflation is transitory. Oh, inflation is running hot. Should we take these people seriously? I think that the uh, confidence of the Federal Reserve deteriorated significantly from probably uh, the spring of 2021 to maybe the summer of 2022, as the Federal Reserve continued to insist incorrectly that inflation was tra it was transitory and inflation spiked higher. Yes, there were a lot of uh, things that the Federal Reserve had, you know, could, could not forecast, like the, the war in Ukraine, which which caused a, a spike in, in energy prices, supply chain, yada yada yada. Um, but yeah, the Federal Reserve was wrong, so I, so that that uh, credibility deteriorated, and I think it had a, a reason to deteriorate. But I think the deterioration has stopped uh, as they realized that inflation was actually a, a big deal and as inflation itself has, has um, gone down. I also would note uh, that, you know, I, I did just criticize the Federal Reserve, but I think that often people who make that crit uh, uh, critique of the Federal Reserve 
don't sufficiently take into account the degree to which the entire economics profession was wrong. So, you know, a genius who has a PhD who works at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, who, you know, was on Bloomberg's, they were saying inflation was transitory too, but they don't get enough shit, uh, frankly. And I think the Federal Reserve, is, Federal Reserve deserves the shit that it gets, but I think that the economics profession generally, not just the people who work on the Federal Reserve, you know, staff, uh, they, they deserve a lot more, uh, you know, egg on their face. And so that's sort of the uh, one part of credibility. The other part is, do I believe that the Federal Reserve is going to do what it is saying it's going to do? And I, I don't know about um, sort of in, in popular conceptions about the, the Federal Reserve. I, frankly, I don't think people think that much about the, the Federal Reserve. But I think in the you know, informed circles, particularly people who are betting on short-term interest rates, and, and you know, based on your background, you're, you guys are definitely in that. It was, it was taken, you know, kind of people who were in the know knew that in 20, uh, you know, 13 or 2014, when the Federal Reserve indicated that it would be hiking, that maybe you shouldn't take, you should take that with a grain of, a grain of salt. Uh, you know, the decade after the uh, great financial crisis was one in which the Federal Reserve indicated a, you know, a desire to go back to normality, what's called that 2% rates. But the Fed, you know, as you know, the Federal Reserve kept the overnight rate uh, at, at zero for a very long time before extremely slowly starting to hike and then hike and hike. And then uh, it continued to indicate that it would hike rates higher and higher when it did its, its actual pivot. So I think that uh, short-term interest rate traders uh, made a lot of money betting that the Federal Reserve would not do what it's going to say it's going to do. And I think, you know, just, uh, you know, survival of the fittest or evolution, whatever you want to call it. I think that's part of the reason why so many people who are still in the bond market trading have that view, because people who didn't have that view, like lost money and, and lost their job or were fired or whatever. Um, and so they, you know, they, they're just not in the business anymore. Uh, I think, though, that that is something I, I think has changed. I, I think that the ultimate trade of 2022 and the, the biggest way to you know, sort of understand the markets and, and be correct and, you know, follow the price action was taking the reserve, uh, Federal Reserve at its own word. When, you know, in January or March of 2022, it said that rates are low and we want to take rates to a restrictive territory. I think there were a lot of people who said, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sell puts on uh, short-term interest rate futures, which basically means you betting that the Federal Reserve won't hike rates. And uh, that was a, a very, uh, um, you know, unprofitable trade. We lost a lot of money. Uh, I think that the the sort of lack of belief in the Fed continues, where you have the, uh, cuts being priced into the forward curve. That would I say, like you know, as I said, I'm I'm uh, the least confident in my own personal macro view as as I've been in in a, in a while. But to the extent that I do have a, a view that's pretty confident, I would say uh, no cuts for 2022. So I'd say uh, uh, forecast credibility is. Uh, low and it deserves to be low, but the Federal Reserve has, you know, eaten its own slice of humble pie, so that's fine. And then, but but the, the thing that I think is wrong is that the market is not taking the Fed at its at its own word. But as Bob indicated, by the action, you know, rates going up, I think that 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 might be changing. So here's where, and I'm just going to say this and, and kind of get your reaction to it, and you can just go. I think there's two levels of credibility. Okay, one is the Fed going to do what it says it's going to do. That's number one. And I think the Fed has earned credibility over this cycle because people didn't believe they would get to 4%, let alone five. And there's a couple of Fed governors coming out saying 5.1 is still our target. 25 basis point wouldn't quite get them there, but you know they could do it again, two, three meetings from now and get there. 
and their credibility would be there. The second level of credibility or area of credibility where I think Jim gets angry at the Fed is their predictive uh, capacity, their predictive capabilities. Yes, a lot of people said transitory, um, but the Fed matters. The other people in theory, um, this is in theory, of course, say transitory, and then they either bet their money or their client's money or the family office's money, whoever's money they run. If Jim and I have a stance and we do a trade, which we both still trade, well, not only was I wrong, but I lost my ass, you know? Whereas the Fed, they actually cause harm or benefit to others as opposed to themselves. And I think the predictive credibility isn't back. So part of the reason I'm glad you said that markets are fighting the Fed, because we grew up with this whole thing, Jim and I are both a lot older than you, that you never fight the Fed. Yet the equity market is fighting the Fed and the bond market is not. As you see the longer end of the curve go higher, then that means higher, inch, or I'm sorry, higher inflation in theory, in theory. So where do you fall in? Do, am I crazy to try and look for two levels of credibility or is it just say what they're going to do and do what they're going to say? So I think uh, that critique- You can call me crazy, it's completely- No, 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 that, that, that critique makes sense in terms of if I have some uninformed view about what foreign policy should be in the, US, in, in the Middle East or China, who cares? I'm just some guy. But if the president has a bad policy, like, yeah, we should yeah. have a higher standard for the president. And that makes sense. We should have a, a higher standard for the Federal Reserve than, than an economist at Goldman Sachs. Sure, that makes sense. Um, your point about the disconnect between the, the bond market and the stock market is a good one. And I think it's, uh, it's resolving itself. It, it, you know, the, the churning con continues. Maybe do, do one of you want to just like lay out for the audience what that is? Because I feel like I've been, I've been talking a lot. The relationship. Oh, I promise I'll share my view. I promise. You're here to talk a lot, but Bobby, you want to take it? Well, in theory, if rates are going higher, right? I'm talking about from the five-year out. Sorry, I'm eating a grape. No worries. Very, very healthy. <laughs> as you could tell from my very ripped physique. So the bond market, if rates are going higher, especially five years out, we will focus on 10, 30 for the purposes of this then in theory, investors are demanding higher yields for a longer term investment because they believe that the dollar will be worth less, whether it's through Fed stimulus or increased prices with inflation. Either way, the opposite is also true. So if interest rates are going lower, then the bond market is betting that the dollar, or I'm sorry, that inflation will be contained and they can get a lower yield for a longer duration because inflation won't be eating their gains away. That's really what I'm referencing here. So as we see, my target for the 10 years is about 388 right now. Uh, it's about 366 last time I looked at it. It's another 20 base points, big move. And Jimmy always makes the correct point that um, yields tend to go for these round numbers more so than any other market. So if it's 388, maybe it goes to four from there. Um, if that happens, it's very difficult for stocks to continue to increase in value. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And the reason it's difficult, I'll give you a really good example. I was on Bloomberg, uh, the Canadian version, BNN, uh, the other, just a couple of days ago. And uh, God, I wish I could remember the person who was interviewing me, but she was vastly younger than me. And I made a point of saying that um, Bridgeview just hired a co-CIO who's 37 years old. 
and I didn't mention whether it was a male or female. And I said, the last time money had a cost to it, this person was 17, right? And because she was probably of a similar, similar age, maybe I shouldn't mention her, I won't. Can't remember her name anyway. But she was, she just started going, well, she can read. And I thought, I didn't say anything because it's her show, but I thought to myself, you know, I boxed for eight years. Before I boxed, I read about it. It was different. It was a lot different reading about like Dempsey and Tunney and Foreman and Frazier than getting punched in the damn face. They were completely different. So if yields continue to go higher, there's a very large portion, especially in the NASDAQ, but in the S&P 500 as well, somewhere around 30%, where the C-suite has never seen money cost anything. And so I don't think those two things can coexist um, in the medium term. Generally. Can I add something to what Bobby said before you go, Jeff? So, cause I agree with everything, except I think there's some minor nuance. And again, when rates are higher, like if you have your dollar to invest, if rates all of a sudden go higher, they they compete for your dollar against stocks. I think that that's pretty, pretty easy to say. But here's what I think too, is that when rates were low, um, the market was telling us that rates were kind of too low and they weren't really perfect for the economic condition. And that's why stocks did well, because it was some inflation. And I think that stocks in, in the past, years and years ago, when the Fed was a lot more um, nuanced and gradual, rates could go up and stocks could go up at the same time. But now I think the belief is that the Fed will overdo it and have to break something in the actual real economy, not just curb a little bit of personal demand. Does that make any sense to you, Jack? Yeah, it, it does. I think that, um, so, you know, as, as people can tell if they're watching us on, on video, like I'm a young guy. And for most of the time that I've been actively, well, not, not most of the, the time, but like last year, I was paying more attention to the markets than I ever was my entire life. And during that period, when interest rates went up, stocks went down. And it was a pretty clear pattern if you were, you know, observing the market, uh, you know, regularly and on a short-term basis, not just like on an investing basis, but on, on a trading basis following, following the short-term price action. Um, but I know historically that the great, so the, the greatest drawdowns in the equity market in 2022, again, on a, a one-day basis, maybe a three-day, five-day basis, short-term, were when interest rates spiked because the Federal Reserve is hiking rates. But I know historically, uh, and, and you know, definitely in the period after the, the Great Financial Crisis, the biggest sell-offs in the stock market were when rates uh, collapsed, when, when bonds rallied because of worry about uh, economic concerns. So I, I think that um, you know the, the 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 regime always changes, and I think we're in a regime now where, and definitely in 2022, interest rates up. You know, if the, if the two-year went up ten basis points, I, I mean, I, I did the work. Um, I, I think, you know, about uh, you know sixty percent of the time, the the, the two-year was above ten basis points or something. The, the stock market uh, sold off that day, and um, if you adjust for like, how much it was off, you know, there, were, you, there was money to be made by shorting stocks when when interest rates, if you knew that interest rates would, would spike. Um, yeah, so so I think that validates what what Bob is saying. I'm I'm curious if that is just a, a feature of this current regime because we're in a time where people are worrying about inflation and uh, discount rates again. This, and this is the, the theoretical reason why stocks are worth less versus what people are actually seeing in the market. And in this case, they happen to, to be correct that, oh, when uh, interest rates are, are at 5%, the future value of, of cash flows in 2040 is worth way less. So I'm not gonna pay for some electric vehicle stock that's losing a you know, million dollars a day. Um, right now, even though it could be super profitable in the future. 
that makes sense to me on a theoretical level. And it also makes sense in terms of what I've seen in the, in the price action. Um, but I, I also think that uh, sometimes interest rates go up because the economy is strong. You know, it's not an inflationary regime, it's a reflationary regime. And I think that's what, you, you know, some part of uh, the stock market action over, over the past, let's say nine months can be explained now, whereas, uh, you know, the stock market is higher now than when it was in uh, June 15th or June 16th, when interest rates were far lower. And that was the first 75 basis point hike. Um, so uh, again, you, you have some question of, our financial conditions, you know, our stocks pricing in the future, to what degree, our stocks ahead of the curve or behind the curve. Um, I think the three of us agree that they're not at the curve. They're, they're definitely not at the curve, but they're, they're like, one or the other. Well, that builds into my question, which is actually more for Bobby. The fact that stocks are so hypersensitive to rate moves by the Fed, it Fed isn't implicit in that, that the, that the stock market thinks the Fed is full of shit and we'll overdo it in either direction. Like if there was just some formula that, that made minute calculations to rates that nobody even really realized it, um, it would be a lot different. When the Fed gets activated, that's why the stock market got pummeled because they thought the Fed was going to break something. Like wrong or right? No, I think you're right. You know, again, things, as you mentioned earlier, and I, and I totally agree with things are nuanced. Like, you know, I only pay attention to like 180 day correlations. I don't even pay attention to longer than that. So for example, um, treasuries. No, let's do 10-year again, since that's what we're on. 10-year note yields are negative 78 over the last 180 days to the NASDAQ. We're only about a negative 65 to the Dow. So to your point, that's the 10-year note. Now, if you looked at the, uh, I could actually look at Euro dollars, but I haven't. I looked at Euro dollars, which is more reflective of the Fed. I suspect it would be a lot uh, higher of a negative. Can you explain that relationship? What you mean? You kind of lost me. Yeah, so if every single tick, if every single time crude oil moved 1%, the dollar moved down 1%, that would be a negative 100% correlation. Gotcha. So they moved exactly opposite of each other. So 78, 78% correlation. They don't move uh, opposite of each oh, other. Oh, so you're talking about the correlation. So a negative yeah, correlation. correlation. Yeah, okay. So I don't necessarily think it has to be that the Fed is going to break something, but I do think that's what it was trading on. Absolutely. And the, the problem I have with it, and Jack, you can again tell me if you think I'm nuts or not, is this is why I think the bond market is the smartest market because it's the hardest one to make money in. And as we've proven over the last three or four years, it's not necessarily uh, easy. It's not necessarily hard to lose money. I mean, a lot of bond funds got crushed prior to this, this recent move. So when you're looking at bond investors versus stocks, I don't want to get anybody upset, but Jimmy, you know this. For 30 years, we've said the stock market is the dumb market. It's, it's bonds, commodities, FX, and then stocks in that order in terms of which one's intelligent, which one's not. And the reason for that is, number one, stocks have a natural upward bias simply because of all the funds that are constantly buying the long-only mutual funds, the 401ks, the um, Roth IRAs that just buy and don't worry about it, buy and don't worry about it. So if nothing is going on, stocks go up slightly, right? So there's kind of always a tailwind behind stocks. That's not the case really in any other market. So stocks are always the dumbest market. Also, and we've all seen this firsthand. I'm assuming you have, Jack. You have people that say, oh, I bought this stock. I think I'm going to sell it when it goes up 
And then it goes down $10. And, ah, it was a long-term hold anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Completely <laughs> changed your thesis. That honestly, I think is one of the worst, uh, like least, uh, the, the most money losing activity or, or practice that someone can do is make a trade that turns out bad and then lie to themselves that they're actually making an investment. Obviously, you know, and you know, I'm sort of pairing Warren Buffett here and you know, in, investing is, I think generally better than, than trading. Uh, if you're a great trader, that, that yeah. may be different from you. Um, I think generally we from, both you know, For most people who don't have a job where they're you know, looking at finance all day, uh, investing is definitely better than trading for, mo for most people. Um, but if you are a trader, you should be aware that you're making a trade. The worst mm -hmm. thing is I bought the stock at $10 and then it went to $5 and I'm like, oh, well, actually I believe in this long-term thesis. You know? And then you're looking for confirmation bias Oh, I listened to this podcast where this guy said that actually the stock is a long-term hold. Um, yeah, I think I think that's probably the most money-losing trait or, or activity so someone can do. If I could just jump in here, the, the, the argument that Jimmy and I have been having for got a year now is Jimmy says the Fed's going to break something and they're going to have to cut rates. And I actually don't disagree with that premise that if they did break something, they were going to have to cut rates. Um, I just... And I think, Jack, you, you kind of referenced this. How do you cut rates with 500,000 jobs added? I'm just talking about the last, obviously, there's been a trend of this. So we could all say that 512, 517, whatever it was, is likely to be revised down quite a bit. But 3.5% unemployment, 160,000 jobless claims. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, probably longer than Jack's been alive, for the Fed to normalize rates. If they're not going to normalize rates with a, a plus one and a half GDP and an unemployment rate at 3.5%, what's the damn point? Just put them at zero and dissolve the Fed and don't worry about it. Just leave it there forever. I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> I assume Jack. <laughs> I think it might have been the room. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. So again, like it is, Jimmy, let me ask you, do you think the Fed is breaking something right now? With well, I did. I, I will say this. I think that there, and, and by the way, this is not just me on an island shouting at windmills or whatever, it. however many metaphors it is. That something was wrong with that Friday number. The fact that the yield curve inverted further means the market agrees with me because what that suggests to me is that the number on its face value, let's say it's illusionary. If it, if it makes the Fed emboldened to keep uh, hiking rates in the short term, they will, in fact, have to eat. I'm not saying that I'm saying 100% they oh, will. That's, that's where my money fair. is, that they will have to number. ease if they overdo it. Now, I've read two different things about that same number. Mark Zandi said they, they always have a difficult time with um, January because of seasonality. This was the fifth warmest January on record, and they didn't take that into account. So many of these jobs, I, I think, were an illusion. There's another kind of name, it's like Steve Anastasio or whatever, who wrote a brilliant piece that I cannot quote because it was very, very complex about why that number was misstated. Yes, I looked for confirmation bias for people who, who were saying the same things I wanted to hear. But again, I will go back to the fact that the, the yield curve inverted. Um, like you guys both say, you don't think the Fed is going to ease by the end of the year. I mean, the market and I are on the other side of you. Jack, you have any comment on that? Yeah, so I think a, a powerful argument about why that uh, labor market number from last week was misleading, whether you're looking at the number of jobs added or the easiest one is just unemployment rate, 3.4%, uh, lowest since 1969. I mean, that's like a, a great talking point, you know, if, if, you're, in, if you're in politics. Um, I think is that 
a lot of the layoffs have been in technology companies that pay uh, exorbitantly well, exorbitantly well. Um, you know, I mean, like if you're a software engineer at, at Facebook, Meta, and you're making $300,000 a year and you just got laid off, but you get severance for, you know, 10 weeks, 20 weeks. Like, I don't think these people want to go on unemployment. And I don't even think they know how to go on unemployment. You know, I mean, they're a software engineer at Facebook. So that's, that's not going to appear in the data. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, there's no way that the labor market is better than is stronger than the uh, um, what what was indicated on of last week. It's possible that it is as good as it seems, um, but I don't I don't think so. And I'd also say that, yeah, I I generally think that the economy uh, is is going to slow from here. Like I I will eat a lot of humble pie in terms of you know a lot of people who I've interviewed. Uh, and you know, I, I generally shared the view, thought that the economy would slow rapidly because of the Fed rate hikes. It hasn't. Um, like, yeah, uh, the job market has been very strong. Consumer spending, if you look at credit card data, is up, you know, ten percent, twenty percent for for you know Christmas spending uh, for, for 2022 relative to 2021. And 2021, by the way, was a boom year. A lot of that is because of the inflation, so gas has cost more. But you know, the 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 uh, the, the consumer has had. Uh, ample savings to spend. And if they didn't, they're borrowing the money. So it, the system is working for now. The wheels are being greased. Um, my view on whether the, the system will continue to be greased is I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more of a skeptic on the soft landing than the average person. But I'd say my confidence is uh, not as high as it was two months ago because, you know, uh, that view has been proven a little bit wrong. So anecdotally, Jack, or you can do maybe what somebody you've interviewed has said or what you think, I don't care, answer it. Just clarify which way you're answering it. Um, consumer debt's on the rise, consumer savings on the decline. Um, is this something that concerns you or your guests or anyone you know? It's a great Especially question. given, I'm sorry, I left something out of there. Some credit cards are back up to 30%. The rates? Yeah, the rates. Yeah. So that's it. I haven't done an interview like purely focused on that. I have um, brought it up. And I think that the data from uh, banks with savings account checking accounts where they, you know, indicate that savings are ample where, you know, oh, if, if a customer who on average had $1,000 in their debit account, checking account in 2019, now they have $3,000. That, that is some pretty bullish data right there. And, you know, that came from Bank of America. Uh, at the same time, you're seeing, yeah, credit card borrowing is is back on the rise. And to me, that is a disconnect, similar to the disconnect between the bond market and the stock market. Uh, the conclusion that you draw from the, those two pieces of data are, are in, in the exact opposite. If everyone has so much money, why are they borrowing money? Why don't they just you know spend right. their, their own money? So, uh, and I'll note that the Bank of America chart that I'm referring to, which is from the third quarter like presentation uh, on Bank of America, the earnings, you know, not like Bank of America research or like for the actual company, yeah. like BAC, the stock. Um, that chart, I was looking forward in the, the fourth quarter presentation, it was curiously absent. So I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, have it. The, the consumer spending is definitely, they're definitely uh, running out of money, but the question is the pace. You know, if, if everyone, uh, you know, if 95% of consumers still have uh, enough money to maintain their lifestyles by September, uh, I don't think the stock market will uh, sell off or, or, or uh, be as bearish as, as people think. It's a, it's a question of timing. Um, yeah. Uh, no, that was more to Bob. You can talk as long as you want. You're the guest. But I have a, a question for both of you. I'll start with you, Jack. And again, I, I mean, 
you know, you, you talk to a lot of people you have here in the market. I, I mean, I, if you want to have your own opinion, great. I'm all for that. So I've heard a lot of very smart people who I respect talk about the, the second shoe to drop in inflation, that somehow inflation is going to spike again now toward the middle of the year, toward the end of the year. How the hell is that supposed to happen if we believe, you know, the M2 money supply increasing by, you know, $9 trillion was part of it. The supply chain uh, debacle that had gone on for years that has to be um, kind of fixing itself over time. What's, what, and the fact that rates are so high, existing home sales are plummeting. Bobby, for, first you, I guess, what's going to cause this second move in inflation? Well, I mean, one of the first things I'm looking at here is copper's up almost 8%. Um, crude oil's up almost 9%. Gasoline prices are back above 330 in most major metropolitan areas. Um, and services inflation has not dropped. And, you know, we've talked about this many times, Jack, on our podcast is that, and by the way, next, is it next week? What's next week? Yeah, next week we have Cameron Dawson on um, from New Edge Wealth. And she's just an absolute clinic in this stuff. And she talks about how service inflation is sticky simply because of what service inflation is made of, which is mostly wages. You know, and that's mostly what the service uh, area, what that inflation comes from. And this is to Jimmy's point, like I'm still in the recession camp, right? Which kind of contradicts what I said about how could you possibly cut rates if we have a 3.5% unemployment rate, but can you cut rates if we have a 3.9% unemployment rate? Um, which we can easily get to and have a recession come. There's also this thought of rolling recessions that has happened in the past that you probably can't get anymore because it's neighbor that has to tell us when a recession is here. But from that perspective, if goods start ticking up again, soybeans recently hit a seven month high. Okay, they pulled back from that. But if core goods start going up and it's not related to supply chain, honestly, I don't know what it would be related to. But if it's not, maybe the China reopening. But if it's not related to supply chain problems and services inflation hasn't gone down and wages have not caught up enough to offset it, that to me is the driver of the second wave. And I'm not predicting it at this point, by the way. I just think that the idea that disinflation is going to turn into deflation is a fantasy, at least in the short term. We're going to get this, by the way, we're going to get the CPI number on uh, February 14th. And I believe, if either of you know if I'm wrong about this, please shout it out immediately. I think this is the first recalculated CPI that we're going to get. So the new standard of only looking back a year for housing costs, which I don't think helps right away, but I think helps in a few months, which could be part of why the Fed could stop. Go ahead, Jack. Actually, I, uh, I got to look into that, the, the, the recalculation. I've seen some people uh, talking about it. I agree with you. I think that outright deflation is, is unlikely um, in the, the short term. And I think disinflation is transitory. A lot of the fall in inflation, uh, headline inflation has been to, uh, because the price of energy has uh, fallen. I mean, there's an oversupply of, of gas, uh, you know, people, you know, um, underestimated the degree to which the United States and uh, Qatar could ship nat uh, liquefied natural gas to Europe. And then the winter was very hot. Uh, so demand was low, uh, coal prices are falling, oil prices fell. And then just on a mathematical basis, um, you know, the price of oil was $120 in June of 2022. Uh, so 
if oil shoots up back to $120 year over year, that's going to be a 0%, no inflation. Um, but so, but I think on a month on month basis, you definitely could get a reacceleration of inflation uh, because the, the services don't go down and also just uh, the commodity prices uh, go up. Uh, copper is, you know, appears to be in a new bull market because of the China reopening. And a lot of people are, that you know, the oil bulls, people who own, uh, you know, speculative oil stocks that, you know, don't make money unless oil is above 60 bucks. Uh, they're saying that that's insanely bullish for oil. I've seen other people who I have a lot of respect for, you know, not necessarily people who have out on my podcast, but people who I, I may have on my podcast say, actually, you know, only 4% or only 4% of China's oil demand is to, um, you know, is, is, is to make jet fuel for, for, for flying. Like they make roads, but a lot of what uh, China's demand for oil is to make refined chemicals that they export to the rest of the world. And that machine has been worrying all throughout 2020, 2021, 2022. So it's not as if this reopening is going to cause a huge, you know, new bull market in oil. Um, but I think that's definitely possible. Now, so a reacceleration inflation, yes. But I, I don't think, you know, I did a, a great interview with Joseph Wang and uh, Dominique Dwarf-Foucault, who, you know, has worked at the Fed, the, the IMF, IMF uh, Bridgewater, you know, other macro hedge funds, she thinks the Federal Reserve could hike to seven or 8% and we get a full reacceleration of inflation where inflation goes back to, you know, 8%, 9% on an annualized basis. Uh, that I think would be characterized as a, a term being tossed around these days is, is the no landing. It's not a soft landing. It's not a hard landing. It's a no landing scenario where the economy is, you know, continues to be in a verified boom. That I think is pretty unlikely at this case, but you can have the beginnings of that. But I think because of the, the rate hikes and because they, you know, they act with the long and variable lag, I think the economy probably is going to slow soon. But you know, I who, who am I to say? I, I have no idea, Bob. Well, I spend a lot of time, a lot of time, dealing with what I know, right? Because that's how I make trades. And every once in a while, something happens. I'm like, you know what? I don't know enough about this and I'm way too lazy to dig into it right now. So I reach out to people that I know or Jimmy knows or both of us know and say, hey, explain this to me like I'm a third grader, right? And I did that with the CPI calculation to Luke Grumman. And I don't think he would be upset with me telling you guys his response. I'd like to get both your comments on this. Luke basically said, look, I am not able to get into the weeds as to what this new calculation means, but... If you believe the government would make it easier for the Fed to stop hiking rates, then you believe what I believe about this new calculation. And that's basically where he left it. So, Jimmy, what do you what do you think about Hold that? It though. So, so you you think he's saying that I thought their new CPI calculation would tend to chronically underestimate inflation to limit their payments to pensions and to all their debt. You're saying. They don't want to underestimate inflation because they don't want the Fed to stop. Or he's saying, no, no, I, I think he's saying what I'm saying. Oh, I'm he's all saying that, that. that they're happy to make it easier for the Fed to not only stop hiking rates, but to potentially cut them. Bingo. Oh, then I'm, I 100% agree. By the with way, I'm putting I words figured in I would. Yeah. 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 Jack, thoughts? Ahead, Jack. Yeah, probably. But on the margin, I think you're probably right, but I, I, I don't have enough confidence. I, I mean, the line I always like to say is like, you think they weren't lying about inflation in the 1980s, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Thank God, by the way, that you're, I thought because of your youth, you might not be as cynical as us. And if I had, if there was one takeaway, I'd like to pull you more towards cynicism like we are, but please continue. 
Okay, so it's 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 more cynical than the cynical take of the federal. Everyone's lying about inflation, but it's saying they're they're not lying any more than they used to. Ly lying about <laughs> monetary is a, is a constant uh, state of nature. So to say that like oh I'm right because the government is wrong and this is the uh, institute that measures the system is, is wrong. Uh, I yeah I I would actually disagree with that because I'm more cynical. Not okay. That much. Nice. The other day we were in, or the other day my wife and I were in a restaurant. I ordered a steak. I'm cutting it. She's like, "What's wrong?" I'm like, "It's probably not even steak." Who knows what anything is anymore? So we we talked a couple different times. I want to get both your opinions on this too about the 3.4 percent unemployment rate, which obviously suggests massive tightness in the labor market, and but wages not really going up to to. Um, to uh, compete with inflation yet. But anyway, back to the tightness. So the labor participation rate has gone from 63.6 prior to the pandemic to 62.4 now. Um, people think, well, just one big percentage point. That's a lot of workers. So a lot of workers have left the workforce. Um, this is an interesting thing to me. Uh, Bobby, I guess I want you first. Is that something that is inflationary itself because it's going to put wage pressures? Or are those people going to come back over time? Participation rate has climbed higher. So I have sort of three opinions on this. So one of them, Jack mentioned that a lot of the people who got laid off, uh, they tend to be of a type. And, and I'm not trying to, yes, I am. I'm stereotyping them. Tech people made a lot of money and they like work-life balance. Maybe they're like, you know, I was thinking of taking a break anyway, right? And they kind of moved off. Then I heard about a phenomenon. We all have heard about this crap, this quiet quitting, which my generation would never admittedly do. And I hate the term, yeah. Yeah, I hate the term. And I, I hate quiet hiring, quiet hiring today. Yeah. Have, you, have you guys heard about quiet hiring? Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So quiet, I just heard about it today for the first time. Quiet hiring is when, let's say that you're a, uh, you do ticketing at an airline. And then they ask you if you'll put in a couple of hours as a baggage handler and they'll bonus you out. That's quiet hiring. And so they don't actually have to hire people. So I'm confused with labor force participation right now. And hopefully Jack can shed some light. I'm, I'm very confused as to what it means because theoretically the numbers should go down with productivity and with technology, but our productivity has not gone up recently. So maybe we should exist at a lower labor force participation rate, but I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Yeah, so a little insight into these media terms like quiet hiring and, and quiet firing. So, you know, I do an interview and I interview someone and then I, you know, create a thumbnail of, of what that interview is going to be called. And my thinking is just like, what's a snazzy way that will make people to click on it? You know, I, I take a lot of pride in my, my interviews are, are deep and sophisticated and I don't shy away from complexity. I, I dive into it. Like I, we, you know, my guest and I in the audience, we run through that brick wall of sophistication, but the, the titling is purely based to get people to be attention. Like I, I, two totally different, one standard, complete intellectual uh, uh, rigor and, and honesty. The other side, it's just about the numbers, you know? And I feel like a lot of what goes on in, in the media, um, particularly like, you know, print media, which it, um, you know, has, has been struggling for, you know, about, about, about two decades, is just like what, what gets click, clicks and quiet hiring, quiet firing, uh, quiet quitting. Those are nice sounding phrases, but I think that they, uh, you know, it, 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 they fail to capture what's, what's actually going on in the labor market. And just a perfect example of one of these articles, and you know, it was in the New York Times, I'm sure the journalist is, is, is great, the editors are great, whatever, but it was about how uh, 
uh, the soaring cost of eggs is causing people to buy their own hens because <laughs> so they're laying eggs. I'm like, this is a story that the editors love because it's sweet because it's like, oh, the, the consumer is adjusting and it's a perfect encapsulation of, of this complicated uh, economic phenomenon that, oh, everyone can understand it. They're buying their own hens. But it's like, this is bullshit. It's no one, bullshit. I don't know anyone who's buying their own hens. And oh, they, oh, they interviewed someone who works at a, a, a hen broker. Surprise, surprise. I'm sure their opinion is unbiased. I'm sure they're going to you know, actually <laughs> report the conditions of, of market conditions. Yeah. Oh, everyone's buying their own hen. I call BS. I have a, I have a non-market question since you're a real journalist. Jimmy, Jimmy and I are not. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we've oh both God. almost nearly gotten completely kicked off of regular media because we wouldn't do what they said. Um, how much, let me phrase this because I really want you to answer it. And I want you to have to say that I really can't answer this. How much is it about, on the journalism side, is it about what will bring attention as opposed to what is valuable? And do you ever think, I'm assuming it, because you're a journalist, you've studied at least a tiny bit of journalistic history. Was it ever like that? Because one of the things very similar to the medical community now, uh, we interviewed Robert Malone um, a couple weeks back or last week, a couple weeks back. And he was talking about how you can't trust your doctors anymore. A lot of us don't trust what we read or see anymore. That's why we like this format because we give people an hour to actually say what they think. And then if they wanna come back a few months later to either change their view or add to it, we're, we're good with that, we encourage that. How much of what we see and feel is curated, not necessarily from an echo chamber, but just in general from, I don't even know who does it, Jack. Like, is it editors? Is it the people who own the media? Who actually pushes forward? This hen story is gonna be great, even though it doesn't matter. So, I, I feel like I honestly have more expertise on like finance proper than than journalism. Like, you know, I, I do consider myself a, a journalist, but you know I studied economics in college, and uh, you know the jobs that I've had after college have been journalistic jobs, but I would say they've been at non-standard places that aren't representative of of the phenomenon. So I'm really you know my insight into this is is like your insight. I'm just like a, a okay. casual observer. Fair enough. Um, but I also say. I think financial journalism and particularly financial print, you know, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, so, so many more, they do a great job. And I actually think that that's un, uh, un, unlikely. I feel like, um, you know, I was talking to a journalist, like sports journalism and financial business journalism are fields where uh, it's, you, you still can sort of, you know, make a living as a journalist and people want to read about it because there's lots of people who, uh, you know, their jobs are in finance, so they want to read about it. They'll pay for the, the quality work. And, you know, people love sports, so they'll, they'll read about, about all those, those stuff, a lot of attention on there. I feel like uh, it's in those uh, pockets, like particularly politics, where, you know, interest has been declining and let's say general, you know, un unbiased reporting. Like, you, it, you know, demand is at an all-time high for biased content about, oh, like red team, blue team, and, and it's, you know, the merging of opinion, um, which is its own, its own phenomenon. But, you know, uh, politics and, and many other fields, yeah. Uh, like uh, pe people aren't as interested in it. And much more importantly than, than actual interest is the monetization engine is, is worrying a lot less. Like in 1985, you know, if, if you wrote an article, the only way people could read it is if they bought the, the paper version, which the you know, margins on that were very high. And then also the, you know, people would read classified ads and it, it, would, it was a profitable business. I mean, you know, newspapers were valued, you know, like, uh, you know, 20 times price to earnings ratio, you know, stuff like that. 
now like so many newspaper companies are bankrupt and you know that can only shape the incentives to the way uh that you, you were saying bob so you know just my, my gut feeling is uh yeah i feel like a lot of people write a lot of uh stuff for clicks but here's the point where you know you may disagree is i, I think it's not only the fault of uh the people working in the field it's it's because the consumer re uh reacts the way it does and professionals are reacting accordingly it's like oh why do we eat all you know, why is the state of nutrition in America so poor? You could say, oh, it's because all of these corporations get in a room and McDonald's and Burger King, and they want to screw people over and make people unhealthy to put you know, profit over people. And sure, you know, there's an element of that, but it's also that uh, people like eating hamburgers and uh, they value cheap food more than healthy food and uh, customers are reacting accordingly. So yeah, pe people, uh, you know, if you see some, um, you know, celebrity gossip news or, or you know, dramatization, uh, if they're doing it because it works, if it worked, they wouldn't do it. No, I think you guys are missing a point here. And I want you to comment on it too, is that with, with the big media, particularly some of the financial media, the bigger stations, there's the sponsorship issue and who's behind the money paying these people. We didn't mention that at all. We mentioned clicks because clicks were historically what brought revenue because you could sell ad space. Um, I think that when you have an activist, um, a, a sponsor that has an agenda, you don't want to go against that sponsor. And I've seen this play out in real time. All I'm asking is, could I be right here, Jack? Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I, I was talking about written journalism, which is a print, but also, you know, yeah. Bloomberg.com, FD.com. Oh, yeah, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Written yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, no, TV stations, 100%. And I think um, if, you know, some, uh, some station is, is sponsored by some exchange, or something, they're not going to bring up, you know, they're going to naturally steer away from that. So I, I think you're 100% right about that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I I just, to, yeah. You, you go by. Well, I need to add something into this because like, I think I, I have no problem saying that um, I stopped watching CNBC a long time ago. I, I often call them the TMZ of financial news um, because it's just not valuable. It just isn't. They have a show called fast money a few hours after they have a guy who says, you basically have to be a long-term investor. They're like, okay, great. So just buy and hold. Now stay tuned for fast money. The fuck is that? <laughs> but then from a perspective of like, I liked your analogy about food because like you can, you can engage in things that are bad for, okay, so he didn't say it. Jimmy owns an absolutely historic, multi-decades old higher-end burger restaurant in the suburbs of Chicago. And he bought it. It was already established. And look at him. He doesn't go in there and eat 10 burgers a night and turn into a 400 pound pig because it's everything in moderation, right? I used to like to watch reality shows in between reading actual books and, you know, doing what we do during the, during the day. And the moderation is not the thing. And when it kind of became every single little thing, I, I have, before I throw out this last comment, and then I'll let you guys wrap it up. I didn't, I voted libertarian in the last two elections because I, I didn't like any of the four candidates, two of which were Trump, and I didn't want any of them to be my fault. So I voted for Gary Johnson, then Joe Jorgensen. I also felt I needed to vote or I shouldn't be a part of the conversation. That's my feeling. I don't put that on anybody else. Um, when the other day, Bloomberg, when they were talking about the classified documents with Joe Biden, right? They said classified documents were at the, found at the president's residence and in the garage of his beach house. But many analysts say the Trump situation is much, much worse. Now on to the next story. And it's like, what the hell was that last part? What the hell was that? They don't say, many analysts say that Trump's was worse. Other analysts say that it's about the same thing. 
it just threw that one part in. I'm like, do I have to stop watching Bloomberg now? I feel like when financial journalism goes too deep into politics, they lose their goddamn minds. I completely agree, Bob. And that's why I uh, generally steer clear away. So I, I'm not going to uh, comment on that. But yeah, no, I, I feel like if you really want to get the best out of me, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about the financial uh, media and what people talk about and just the, the, the misconceptions. You know, I, I feel like a lot on the channels that you, you refer to, we're in a bull, I was going to say we're in a bull market now, but you know, stocks, what's the S&P up? 10%, 15% for year to date. Yeah. So everyone's super bullish now and everyone's going to talk bullish. And if we have a 15% sell-off, they're going to talk bearish. I feel like those uh, channels generally, you know, they'll tell you that uh, they'll, they'll tell you to buy an umbrella if it just rained yesterday and they'll tell you to buy sunblock if it just was sunny yesterday. And it's a shame because I really feel like part of the responsibility is on the audience. That, that's what they respond to, you know, about the, the whole burger thing. Like people on those channels are, are brilliant. And they, I can tell, like, they want to talk about businesses. They want to talk yeah. about pricing power. They want to talk Some about, the the guests are but they just, the views are 10% of what they were when they say, you know, buy, buy, buy or sell, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I will. Add, I want to add something first to what Bobby said too. In my burger restaurant, I am very clear with all the regulars. I say this out loud at least twice a day. If you eat here three or four times a week, you are going to die. It is going to be a good way to go, but you are going to die. So I'm. There's plenty of, of warnings I give, and people sometimes tend to ignore that warning. And I agree. I, I like the way we're kind of wrapping up this conversation too, because it's something I think is important. Is that what? What are the outlets you can trust? By, by the way, Jack, I do want you to have the last words. Like when you get up in the morning and you want to know what's going on, and if you don't want to give a plug to anybody, that's fine. But where do you go, do you think, to get the most unbiased financial journalism besides yourself and Bobby and I? Uh, that's great. I, I'd say I look, I look at the prices. I look at the economic data. Uh, I, I receive a lot of research, You know, uh, most of which I'm lucky enough to get for free because I, I've interviewed them. Um, uh, and then, and then Twitter, I feel like, you know, Twitter, the Twitter algorithm seems very bad at monetizing it, but the Twitter algorithm is very good at finding stuff that I like. Like it's, you know, there's so much, there's so many, you know, uh, parts of financial Twitter that would not appeal to me at all. And the algorithm doesn't give it to me. Like, uh, um, you know, I, I once tweeted something that was a very, about a, a check, uh, the uh, evolution of a check. And I was like, oh, like what people think was money in 1700, like a gold bar, when it actually was. And it was a letter saying, dear, my, you know, my loving friend, like, please deposit 100 shillings, whatever. And it was an MMT. Like I knew that that would sort of people in the MMT style community would like it. And the first like it got was from the guy who was like the most MMT guy ever, you know? So like the algorithm, the al Twitter algorithm works, but, um, uh, Jim, what was the, what was the question you said? And then also you said something about the labor market or something that I kind of disagreed with, but I forget what it was. I, I, about people leaving the labor force and having that being a big part of the tightness in the uh, labor market. Was that it? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there are two things about which generally people have way too much confidence, both institutional expert investors, people with, you know, a reason to, to have confidence such as yourself, as well as, you know, retail investors who listen to a podcast and they listen to some really confident guys explain this and, and therefore they inherited this guy's confidence, which neither people deserve to have. And it's about demographics and it, it, yeah, it's about demographics and, and as particularly the labor market. I can't tell you that aging demographics is inflationary or deflationary, but I, I can tell you that people should have less, a lot less confidence. You know, everyone was saying in 2015, 2016, 
aging demographics in the US, that is going to be deflationary just like it was in Japan. That was the narrative. And you know, that if you wanted to be a smart sounding person, that's what you said. That has been incredibly wrong. Like the aging of the um, millennials, you know, millennials finally have some money. They finally been able to borrow money. They're buying houses. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's about particular parts of the microstructure of the sort of, um, you know, demographic curve. So, yeah, I just think people have way too much confidence about whether demographics is inflationary or, or, or deflationary. Um, but that yeah, was because what you're saying is it could be deflationary because, uh, you know, from a productivity standpoint, from a macroeconomic standpoint, but it could almost be inflationary because it tightens up the labor market and could increase wages for the people who are remaining in the labor market. Is that what Completely. you're saying? Exactly, Bob. And the thing I disagree with you is you said that wages weren't picking up, that, uh, oh, we have unemployment at 3.4%, but wages aren't picking up. And yes, it's true that inflation-adjusted real personal income was negative for the first part of 2022 because wages were going up, but inflation was going up way more because of energy prices. We've actually had a pretty epic reversal in that trend over the past six months. And that, I think, is giving life to this sort of transitory Goldilocks, you know, not my phrase, but uh, it's where, yeah, people's wages are going up and the price of gas has gone down. So, you know, they're spending a lot of money. Um, so I, I actually think that in the short term of the past six months, uh, real wages have gone up a lot. And I think that's what's sort of, you know, uh, sustaining this economic boom, uh, which it sounds like the three of us agree is, is not long for this world. Yeah, I think I, I might have misspoke. I, if I did say that wages aren't going up, I meant to say that they're not keeping up or they weren't keeping up. But um, you're right. I mean, that's definitely that's definitely shifted. It's part of the shift, and it's likely part of the reason why, if it does, inflation could pick back up again. I like it. You want to wrap it here, boys? Yeah. Think so. Thank you so much for having me. Jay, thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. You're a lot of fun. I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. People can find me on uh, Twitter at Jack Farley. And yeah, the podcast uh, is Forward Guidance. Uh, check it out. Uh, one, one interview I'll, I'll plug. I, I don't know when this will air. Uh, definitely check out my interview with Joseph Wang and Dominique Dwarf-Foucault, uh, which aired earlier this week. And then my interview that aired today is with the best performing investor that, that I know of in 2022. Uh, this guy launched a, a hedge fund in 2021. Um, and in 2022, he returned 163%. Uh, and the, it's, I, I love the way this interview started. I, I asked him, I said, so Neil, his name's Neil Berger, uh, you know, in 2022, stocks went down, bonds went down, crypto went down, and yet you made 163%. How did you do it? And he's like, well, Jack, uh, I bet I, I shorted on stocks and bonds pretty aggressively. So uh, pretty simple. <laughs> Very cool. And by the way, the woman's name that you said, you said it kind of fast and I didn't get it. What is it, Dominic? Uh, Dominique Dwarfoucault, uh, a complex name, beautiful name. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you. Hope we talk again soon. Thank you much. Thanks, Jack. Cheers.